All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this privilege. Help us never take it for granted that you give us your word and you provide the resources to learn and understand the way you think and to help us think properly, spiritually, in a way that we can be separate from the world. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to become our substitute, to become a sin offering on our behalf so that whoever trusts in him can be saved. Father, we ask that you guide this message through your spirit, help us understand the special personal lessons you have for us tonight. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. All right, on the board we're continuing with this series on salvation slash deliverance is from our Creator slash Redeemer. And, um, you know, I'll just comment too real quick on the title of this series. Notice we have a slash between the two words, right? Salvation, deliverance, Creator, Redeemer. And just think of the coin. Think of the two-sided coin there. You know, there's a reason that it doesn't say salvation and deliverance and the creator and redeemer. Because, again, we're talking about a lot of unity principles and how these things are, the, you know, two sides of the same coin, which you're going to see more examples of a little bit tonight. So in part three of salvation, deliverance is from our creator, redeemer. And the first point on the board is that salvation and deliverance can only come from the Lord, and His roles as Creator and Redeemer represent who He must be acknowledged as for any person to receive salvation and deliverance. This is basically what we've been talking about the last couple lessons, and we saw that in Acts 20, verse 21. So on the board, let's look at that in the Amplified Version this time. Paul says, But constantly and earnestly... I bore testimony both to Jews and Greeks, urging them to turn in repentance that is due to God and to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that is due Him. So there again we see two sides of the coin, repentance and faith. One toward God, the Creator, and one toward Christ, the Redeemer. And we've also been noting that that. These principles, even this, the principles in this verse, which in this verse are, are geared towards the unbeliever becoming saved, these things apply to the believer as well. Um, these same concepts, these same mindsets, all right, these two sides of the coin, the same way we're saved is the same way we're to live the spiritual life, right? By living in the gospel reality. So we're back to the concept in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And I asked you, know, you last time, what gives us the power to live as a righteous man, in Romans 1. And it says the gospel is actually the power to live as a righteous man even after salvation. So let's go back there and just look at this one more time with our eyes, and maybe the Spirit will give you something new, new on this from before. Go to Romans 1.16. And we're talking about how the things meant for the unbeliever are also something we carry on into the spiritual life, particularly 
the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Isn't it interesting, we just read on the board, Paul said, I say the same things to the Jews and the Greeks, right? Repentance and faith. And now we see it here in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, right? In context, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the gospel takes us from initial saving faith all the way through faith in the spiritual life, through sanctification. The power is the gospel. And that's why we can never lose sight of it. Or we, you know, we um, lose sight of it. (laughs) If we lose sight of the gospel as the power source, where we're going in the wrong direction, we'll get caught down in the weeds, so to speak. We become myopic. You know, we become self-centered even in the spiritual life. We think spiritual growth is different than the gospel. So it's maybe I have to do something differently. And we start maybe to rely on our own power. But you see how clinging to the gospel all the way through throws all that trash out. And it's the same old simple gospel power. The gospel is the power. So on the board, the righteous man shall live by faith in the gospel and in the promises of God related to the gospel as he travels the road of sanctification. The very same gospel that saved us continues to be the method of saving us each and every day and even sanctifying us, which really is a unified principle. And that's where the term comes from, living in the gospel reality that Pastor Collins gave us. So this shows us even more that it's not about us. It's about God and His simple grace solutions. It's not about us, ever. Even after we're saved and even after we think we now know a lot of the Word of God and we get a little bit puffed up in knowledge. As soon as we're a little bit puffed up in knowledge, we're, we're something, we went, went astray somewhere, right? Something is missing. So we've got to go back to the gospel and stop taking any credit. It's always His ways by grace through faith. And therefore, He gets all the glory even as we grow up spiritually. So living in the gospel reality and being saved daily requires an attitude of repentance and humility. Being sanctified includes this as well, and in fact, they unified terms. And as we try to cast our little religions out from our souls, the reminder of our sovereign creator and a healthy fear of him is often the only thing that can help us. Repentance and humility, right? Even after salvation. As we try to cast our little religions out from our souls, and we try to do it in our own power, <laughs> and, oh, Lord, I can't defeat this. Why can't I defeat this? And maybe there's too much emphasis on you. The reminder of God being our sovereign creator and a healthy fear of him is often the only thing that can help us drop these things. And keep in mind what God also has been telling us If anyone has the big picture in mind, it's God, right? If anyone has it all all perfectly viewed from the top down, 
and he has the bird's eye view, so to speak, right? Which we try to attain, we try to transcend it all and see it all as truth. But God knows the end from the beginning. He'll do whatever it takes to bring us to sanctification. He'll do whatever it takes. So we have minimal regrets when we meet him one day, once for all. So we talked about this point on the board also, that God as our Father loves us so much, and he has great noble plans for his children. But when we repeatedly violate his noble plans, he will discipline us when needed to help us get out of our own way so we don't just waste our life away. So don't underestimate God's discipline. He clearly has the power, and he clearly has the love to do it. And it's when we take that lightly that we might need a better whipping. You know? It's when we take him lightly that we may be putting him to the test in our heart. You know? Our heart is not as humble as it should be. So God cares too much as our Father to sit there and watch and let us destroy ourselves, which inevitably happens. You know, you think about, um, I was thinking about the other day, how God gave us work as part of the curse when man fell. Thank God he gave us work and that he said you have to work to the sweat of your brow. If he didn't, how much trouble would we get in? Can you imagine if you had all day long, right, and you were healthy and strong and had money and had everything? way too much time in our hands with the sin nature. But God says, all right, this is going to be something that you need. It's going to protect you along with his discipline when necessary. So he will use his power and authority to correct us, and he can do it quite well because he knows exactly where to hit each one of us. Thank God. Pastor Collins also said last week, God is not a puppet. You're not entitled to anything. And we naturally think in this country that we are due certain things, and that's our own mistake, that's our own problem that we often grew up with, and often we'll say, if I'm not getting it, I'm going to get it, I'll make it happen, you know, I'll force it, basically is what we say, I want it now, I'm going to go out and find it, whatever it is, and that is not a blessing from God, is it, we know the Lord he brings them to you if it's from him. And his are the best. So why do we follow any idol? We talked about this on Tuesday. Is it because we're impatient for God's blessings? Do we try to find a substitute just to satisfy our desires in the short term? Foolishly, even rationalizing that it's from God because God wants you to be happy, as pastors said a lot. So we talked about following idols. And if we truly fear God and his power, we won't go there. Fear of God is vital to denying ungodliness and living in humility. Make sure that you count God for who he is as creator. Don't underestimate all of his power and his sovereignty. Don't become familiar because you're under grace. As Paul said one time in the Bible, cut it off if need be. Don't obey the flesh when you know it's from the flesh. Your creator knows you perfectly, and therefore he knows the perfect time to bless you in the right way 
as well. So if he says, no, it's for your best, we should say, okay, Dad, I'm good. I trust you. I don't understand it exactly. I really want this desire. You know I have this desire, but I trust you. I'm good. And then live freely in your salvation. Be content with all things and let him bring it to you. Because you have that power. You have Christ in you, right? You have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. And if we humble ourselves before our almighty God, we can live that way in contentment. Because we know our Father loves us and disciplines us. So the news flash we saw on Tuesday, I don't know if anyone made a neon sign, but you are here for God, not for yourself. And the reason our flesh cringes when we see that there on the board is our flesh is out for self, right? Our flesh is always out for self, no matter how good an impression it it tries to give to self or others. The flesh is always out for personal gain, personal satisfaction. But our spirit rejoices within us when we see this on the board. You see? We have these two natures battling in us. But your spirit, the spirit of Christ in you, rejoices when it sees that. We know, and in your spirit you know, that God gives us, and only God gives us, true purpose in life. How many... many chases do we have to go on to be reminded that there's no true purpose in life without following God? How many rabbit holes do we need to go down? And how many times do we need to get punched in the face or whatever analogy you want to use in life to realize it doesn't work? But God's ways are pure and His purpose is true. So if there's something that's good to become obsessed about, it's God's truth. It's principles like this on the board. You know, make a sign if you want to. Become obsessed. Don't become obsessed about anything in this world. Otherwise, it becomes an idol. But become obsessed about our true God and Savior. And run with that. And if people want to call you a nut, fine. You're going to be a happy nut. It's true. You're going to be happy. You're going to be content. You're going to be at peace. And who cares what people think? And there's another idol that holds us back. So we need to fear God properly and realize all his blessings, or all blessings that he gives us are from him and for him. Let's go again to Colossians 1.16. And we have no problem saying and giving God credit that all, all the good blessings we have in life are from him. You know, we say... Thank you, God, for this and that. But do we stop there? Or do we count the blessings he's actually given us for his benefit, for his glory? And do we use the blessings he gives us for, for his glory or for our own glory? Look at Colossians 1.16 again. Now, actually, start in verse 15. It says, He, talking about Jesus Christ, is the invisible or the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Notice, through him and for him. 
And it's funny, we talked on Tuesday how this verse is talking about Jesus Christ, actually, right? As the creator of all things. <clears throat> but I thought God the Father was creator of all things, right? And this is one of the beautiful things about the scriptures. It's funny, we naturally think of, through a lot of our Bible study, of God as the creator. And that's what we've been talking about this whole series, right? God is the creator. Repentance towards God. Faith towards Christ, right? But yet, the Bible says, the roles are reversed also. Jesus is also the creator. In the Old Testament, God says, I'm the redeemer. I'll redeem you. And then in the New Testament, we find out it's Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. So, again, you just see a perfect picture of unity there, right? Unity of thought, unity of mind, unity of the Trinity. But all things have been created through him and for him. And go to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Let's look at this one more time. First Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. For Him. So on the board, all good things the Father gives us are ultimately to show Satan and the fallen angels how gracious our God is to us sinners and how God can turn sinners into sanctified creatures who can live sanctified lives. That's probably the most amazing part there at the end, but it's all one, isn't it? It's that, that God can save sinners and sanctify. It's all one in God's eye, God's perspective. But what a miracle it is for the angels to see sinners like us become sanctified creatures that bring glory to God. If we choose to bring ourselves glory or live selfishly with his gifts, then we fall into the trap of the Galatians who didn't use their freedom for his glory. They used it for themselves and they fell back into bondage. They forgot it was for him. We are to give God glory for his gifts and realize a divine purpose in them, not selfish purposes that come from a false sense of entitlement. So on the board, we're getting into some new principles now that we haven't covered yet. The more we accept the Lord's sovereignty and omnipotence, the more we will remember our place. And that is extremely valuable in living a life of humility and ultimately true freedom. Again, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Creator in this series and fearing the Creator. I'm actually surprised how much God brought fear again back into this lesson, which we, we talked about several months ago, if you remember. But the more we accept the Lord's sovereignty and omnipotence, the more, more we will remember our place. And that's extremely valuable in living a life of humility and ultimately true freedom. Knowing that life is so temporary and that our life rests in His hands alone, we will develop a proper fear of the Lord, which will help save us every day, including saving us from ourselves. Can't forget that part. What God will always be is Lord, Sovereign Lord. 
And we'd be very foolish to forget that, even as those who are already saved by grace. We need to have a growing realization throughout our whole lives of Him as Lord and Master and Creator and King. And think of David. Think of a lot of the Old Testament believers. They had this awe for, these, for God as, as these titles, if you will. Lord, Master, Creator, King. They never took Him lightly because of grace. So this is part of being set apart to a life of righteousness. If we're going to be set apart from the world and not give in to the schemes of the devil and not fall sucker to the lies in the world, we better have this proper fear of who he really is. Or we're going to buy the lie because we take grace for granted. What humbled a man like Joseph so much that he was a great man of God that he was? At one point in his life, and while being blessed by God, he said, how can I even think about sinning against my God? Think about that attitude. He had proper fear and respect for the Lord, his Creator and his Redeemer. Let's turn to Genesis 39 and take a look at this statement by Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 6. What made these guys great believers is humility, which pastor's been harping on, the Spirit's been harping on, right? These guys were so wonderful as, as followers of God because of their great humility. And it's an oxymoron, right? You want to be great? Be humble, right? God says, I give grace to the humble, not to those that think they deserve it. These guys were fantastic, wonderful examples to us because they were so darn humble. And humility comes from respect and fear. Look at Genesis 39, verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now remember, this is when Joseph is being blessed in the nation of Egypt at this point. He's got some power. He's got prestige. He's got money. He's been blessed out by God, not fully yet, but quite a bit. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He goes from talking about his master, who's given him charge of the whole house, immediately to talking about God. In other words, God gave me all of this that my master gave me. It's for him. It's from him, and it's for him. How can I now basically spit in his face? How can I do this great evil and sin against God, the one who gave me all these blessings. We'd probably do ourselves well to memorize the end of verse 9. But it also needs to become a heart issue, which the Lord will do for us if we're humble before Him. It needs to be a heart issue. It can't just be a memorized, this is what I say. 
when the time comes to face sin. Only God can change our heart to have a heart as humble as Joseph, right? But we continue to humble ourselves before him day by day in his word, and he can create this heart in us. Part of the sanctification process. But what a heart Joseph had for God. He said, look at all God's blessed me with. This is all from him and for him. How can I possibly now sin against him? We as believers need to follow his example and possess the same awe and respect for our creator as motivation. Just think about the title, creator of the heavens and the earth. Think about that title for a minute. Creator of heavens and earth. Is there anything greater? Could there be anything bigger or more uh, all-encompassing, right? There's no position greater. It's not possible. That's our God and Savior. And this almighty God that created everything wants to be our God. Go to Isaiah 43, verse 1. The creator of the heavens and the earth wants to be our God. And he wants us for his possession. Isaiah 43, verse 1. And let's remember, humility is a gift, right? It's all a gift. All these qualities like that Joseph had, that I, the prophet Isaiah had, the, what made them great believers was their humility. But that is even a gift. And it just depends on our free will, right? We're going to turn to him or not. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice we have the Lord as creator and redeemer in this verse. And he says, I've called you by name. You're mine. On the board in Jeremiah 31, 33, part C, God says, I will be their God. This almighty creator that should have nothing to do with us says, I will be their God, the creator of the heaven, heavens and the earth, and of your very life, your temporary life, wants to be your God forever. And that should humble us right there even more. He makes this promise to those who will turn to his son in humility. So we're talking about humility from recognizing God's sovereignty. And as you look into the sky on a clear, starry night, step back and fathom that our God and Creator spread out the infinite universe with His fingers, in Isaiah 40, verse 12, and that was after He created it all by just saying a word. The more we study about this awesomeness of our God and Creator, and the more verses we read about this, gives us more humility. Is that fair to say? I mean, it's not like a a magic potion here. But if, if we dwell on these things, if we dwell on his infiniteness and his awesomeness in creation, that will increase our humility. But it's when we forget about him and who he really is and the type of awe we should have for him that we fall 
trapped to the ways of the world. So let's look at a few verses here mentioned in this verse. Uh, We're not going to go to Genesis 1 because you all know the creation story, and you can read that on your own if you like. Let's go to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 1. So if you haven't done this in a while on the board, give it a try. Maybe not tonight because it's going to be like 9 degrees. But I'll tell you one thing, the sky is going to be very clear. (laughs) On the cold nights, it's very, very clear, isn't it? But if you haven't done this in a while, you know, maybe make some time for this kind of a thing to stop your crazy life that's being lived for self and to pause and just look at who it is that is our creator and who it is we worship. Psalm 33, verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There's why we fear the Lord, because we see what he's done, even with just the word of his mouth. There's an appropriate fear and awe of God our Creator. And when we have that, in humility, we can grow spiritually by His grace. Turn to Psalm 148, verse 1. Psalm 148. Again, we're just magnifying the point on the board to step back and fathom what He's done in this infinite universe with such ease, no less. Psalm 148.1 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. All those praises, why? Why should we praise Him for all that, all those things, all that stuff? Because He commanded and they were created by the breath of His mouth. Done. Some of you are afraid of storms, thunderstorms, maybe blizzards. Some people are afraid of earthquakes, and rightfully so. That's nothing like what took place on the day of creation. Can you imagine the sound? I think there probably was a big bang on the day of creation. Because he spoke it and all this stuff came into being. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the sound, maybe? That's our God. And by his grace, the Bible says, we were fearfully and wonderfully made fearfully and wonderfully made. 
just like all the things in creation. But us, he gave life. He gave life, and he'll never take it back. So let's take a little detour from the verses on the board and go to Psalm 139, since we're close by. And let's just see a little reminder that the creator of the infinite universe is the creator of your delicate, intricate body and soul. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks for you, or to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Same God, same creator as the heavens and the earth. Now that's perspective, isn't it? I mean, why did he create this delicate thing called life? In eternity, it won't be delicate. It'll be, you know, infinite, perfect. But right now, he gave us this delicate thing called life to live in the face of all this powerful creation. Interesting. And then add to that that scientists now say that the microscopic cells in the human body are more complex than today's modern-day computers. I mean, obviously, it's infathomable, right? You can't comprehend this. And for God, this was all a piece of cake. He just spoke it. That's our awesome God and Creator that we rightly should fear. Go to Isaiah 40, verse 12. Isaiah 40, verse 12. So God gives us all this accommodating language in his word so that we can understand what he did. Who's to say, you know, he did it exactly like this or it was in steps even, right? Like we know that he spoke and it was all created. And then this verse tells us he spread out the heavens with his fingers. You know, maybe it's just for our benefit so we can see and understand. Isaiah 40 verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span, that refers to his fingers, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Awe and respect for our Creator is essential in surrendering to Him as Redeemer as well. On the board... Our God and Creator wants to save us from sin and deliver us to righteousness. In fact, that's what Christ did for us on the cross. He died to sin and He rose for righteousness' sake, for our righteousness, in Romans 4.25. Let's turn to Romans 4 and start in verse 19. Our God and Creator became a man. And in the person of Christ, he died for sin and he rose for righteousness. That's the divine purpose of God in giving life to his creatures. He wants it to be eternal life for those that choose him. Romans 4.19 
Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to also perform. Therefore, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Why? Because of his faith, right? Not because of his works, because of his faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions or sins and was raised because of our justification. And there's a little picture of the coin flipping in our Lord's life, if you will. He went to the cross, took sin upon himself, and suffered and died in our place. And then three days later, the coin flipped. And he was resurrected to a perfect life of righteousness forever and ever. And it was for our justification so that we could be like him by faith. He became a, became a sin offering on our behalf. He never sinned, but he became a sin offering. He took sin, our sin, upon himself. And then he rose victorious in righteousness. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. <clears throat> May we never forget this verse, which magnifies what we just read in verse 25. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So we just read in Romans 4.25 that he was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised from the dead because of our justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the coin flipping for us, if you will. But he was raised from the dead for our justification, for all those that would believe in him, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the board, we are saved from sin and delivered to righteousness. We've been saved and sanctified as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to perform a good work in those who believe. Again, two sides of the same coin, saved and sanctified. But until one acknowledges God as his creator, he's going to be stuck in deception. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 and revisit what we saw there about God consciousness. And this goes back to giving the gospel correctly, doesn't it? The fullness of the gospel. <clears throat> Letting people know they need to repent before their God and creator, right? Before we say, okay, here's, here's the final answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. But the fullness of the gospel, giving them the complete story we've been talking about, the salvation story, right? Don't be shy to spend time on this part, that God is your creator and you're going to answer to him one day. They need to understand that. They need to be shocked into that if necessary. Because there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, you know, 
if God exists, okay, I'll see him when I die. Huh. You don't understand what, what you're saying. You've got to understand where you stand before him, before you realize you need a Savior. So on the board, before we read this verse, if one doesn't even believe in or acknowledge God as his creator, then there's nowhere they can go. There's no humility where the soil can produce fruit of righteousness. There's no good soil to receive the gospel and sprout into fruit, which always happens for a true believer. But they can't get there. They're not, they're not ready. They're not humble to admit their need for the Savior. So we've been talking about this a lot, how the conversion process begins with repentance toward God and admitting one's sinfulness before him. Let's look at Romans 1. Let's just read verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. If that doesn't sound like today, I don't know what does, right? And then look at verse 28. <clears throat> and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They did not see fit to acknowledge God as their creator, the one they will answer to. And I'll ask you to keep um, David and myself in prayer as we're meeting tomorrow with a cousin of ours that basically says, I don't believe in God. I, and I, he may have as a, as a kid, but now he's in his 20s. And uh, we're going to have coffee with him. And, you know, pray that he comes to this point first, that he is your creator. I mean, look around you. Wake up. Stop believing the lies of the world, right? And you will answer to him. And you don't have an excuse. It's all around you. His creation is all around you. So I'd appreciate the prayers tomorrow for that and for him. His name is Michael, if you want to pray for him. But, you see, here, here's a picture of, of proper fear of God in this passage, isn't it? Look at verse 18. The wrath of God. That exists. It's revealed from heaven and one day will for all eternity. So fear of God is a good thing. It makes unbelievers come to him. And it makes believers follow him. It's the right thing. It's the proper thing. Fear of God is a good thing. And in the past, I've underestimated the importance of that right fear of God. Just because we're under grace, do we stop having awe and respect for the creator of the universe? And not that we stopped, not that I stopped, but, you know, whatever you want to call it. Getting a little too comfortable? Right? Taking grace for granted, whatever you want to call it. 
this is the God of the universe. And fear of him is a very good thing. And here's what I think happened in my own soul, maybe. We think because there is no fear in love, in 1 John 4.18, that we should not fear God. But no fear in love, it's referring to having no fear of the things in this world. Because you know you're perfectly loved by God. All right, let me repeat that. We think because there's no fear in love, 1 John 4.18, that we should not fear God. But no fear in love refers to having no fear in this world because you know you're perfectly loved by God. So there are two different things, really. Go to 1 John 4, and let's just read this passage <clears throat> as a reminder and then compare it to another passage where the Lord wakes us up. 1 John 4, we'll start in verse 15. So again, look at the point on the board if you need to, to see what this is saying. It can't, no fear in love cannot refer to not fearing God, right? Because we're told to fear God so many times in the Bible. More than I ever thought. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. See, God does want us to have confidence, right? Because we know we're loved perfectly by him. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment or discipline, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So there is no fear in love. There's no fear of the things in this world, because we know we're perfectly loved by God. And that perfect love of God casts out fear so that we don't fall prey to Satan's weapon of fear, for us to fear things or people in the world. But Jesus said we should fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, there's no fearing man if we know how we're loved by God as believers, as his children now. But the one we rightly fear is God himself. Go to Luke chapter 12, verse 4. And I want you to notice here that in context, the Lord Jesus Christ is instructing his disciples about proper fear of God. Not unbelievers. His disciples. Look at verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The one that has authority to cast into hell. 
Obviously, he doesn't cast any true believers into hell, but fear the one that has that power and that authority. So in context, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his followers, not a bunch of unbelievers. And I just want to give you a couple um, commentaries that give an interesting perspective on this verse we just read. This is from Adam Clark on Luke 12, verse 5, regarding fearing him. Even the friends of God are commanded to fear God as a being who has authority to send both body and soul into hell. In other words, it's not an empty promise or it's not an empty threat. He could do it if he wanted to, right? He has that power. If some guy down the street says to you, I'm going to kill you and then throw you in hell, you're going to say, yeah, right, you can't do that. You don't have the authority. You can kill me, but you, don't, you can't put me in hell. You don't have that power and authority. But God clearly does, and it, he's never void of that power and authority. So I'm sorry to interject there. but um, Therefore, he says, it is proper even for the most holy persons to maintain a fear of God as the punisher of all unrighteousness. A man has but one life to lose and one soul to save, and it is madness to sacrifice the salvation of the soul to the preservation of the life. So there's one perspective, one commentary on what Jesus meant in verse 5. Here's another different view into the rose bush by John Calvin. He says, Christ must be viewed as saying that when we give way to the dread of men, we pay no respect to God. Interesting statement. Think about that. When we give way, in other words, when we have any fear for men and their threats, we pay no respect to God. We're not believing the love he has for us and that he can save us at any moment, right, from any situation. So when we give way to the dread of men, we pay no respect to God. And that, if on the contrary, we fear God, we have an easy victory in our hands so that no efforts of men will draw us aside from our duty. Perfect love casts out fear, right? We won't fear men and the things in the world because we know his love, but we should fear God properly. If you look on in Luke chapter 12, we're not going to read it, but right after verse 5, Jesus starts telling them, the disciples, that they're more valuable to God than many sparrows, and the very hairs of their head are all numbered. So clearly the Lord is saying, just don't forget the one who saved you. Don't forget the one you serve on the board. Don't forget the one you serve. Don't forget his power and authority. That reality will keep us humble and give us courage to serve him without hesitation, even in the face of the threats of man. So now as believers, we are being perfected in the love of God. And because we abide in him, as John said, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. All right, we can because of what he's done. He's purchased us. The Redeemer has completed the work. And when you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you accept that, you are redeemed, and then you can live by faith in the Redeemer as well. So we can have confidence in the day of judgment. We know who we are in Christ. But let's not forget where we came from, nor the sovereignty of God. 
Even after the day of our salvation, we are called to keep an appropriate fear of God, as we saw in Philippians 2, where it says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. So we must remember our place. Pastor Collins has often said over the last few years, you, you only come this way once. You only come this way once. We have only one life to live, so what will we make of the rest of our days going forward? You can't do a redo of yesterday, right? God's not going to allow it. You don't have the power to go back, and He's not going to allow you to go back. So what can we do but live the rest of our days for Him in fear of our Creator? Just look at Ananias and Sapphira as an example. They dropped dead by the Holy Spirit because they lied to God. We can live for ourselves if we want to, and maybe He'll have to take us home early, and then we'll have regrets at the judgment seat. And what a sad day, what a sad, shameful time that'll be, even though it's temporary. That'll really suck, for lack of a better word. Right? No, seriously, imagine facing him and being like, oh, why did I live for myself? I mean, when it's over, it's over. And maybe Ananias and Sapphira had that thought. But we only have one chance to bring him glory. On the board, we ought to have fear for Christ and also fear for God. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Holy Spirit brought these two verses up last week before Pastor went on vacation. So let's go to Ephesians 5.21 as we begin to close. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.21. We are instructed to have fear for Christ and also fear for God. It may seem like an oxymoron, you know? We're under grace. He's our Redeemer. He loves us. He saved us. Right. Have proper fear and respect for His authority and what He did. Look at verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, if you really appreciate what Christ did for you, be servants of one another. If you really respect and, and believe in his self-sacrifice, in the act he did for us on the cross, serve one another. Do it in the fear of Christ. And look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Turn there, please. <clears throat> Excuse me. These both came up last week. Again, I was kind of chuckling in my seat because I knew these were coming up in in this series and how the Holy Spirit just blends it all together and makes his own segues. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. From the wisest man that maybe ever lived, Solomon, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. I don't know how he'll do that for the believer exactly. All right? But he's going to bring every act to judgment. 
Shouldn't that make us fear him more? And not like overlook certain things in our lives, not take his grace for granted. God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And this was Solomon speaking. You know, he wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking about, this is wise for everybody, right here. Fear God and keep his commands. So, in closing, the pattern remains the same. The two sides of the coin, if you will. The pattern remains the same. It's all the same message, and it's for unbeliever and believer. Before salvation and after. Fear God and live. Fear your Creator and turn to your Redeemer for true life. Repent and believe. Confess and press on. We are saved from sin and delivered to righteousness our whole lives by grace through faith if we stay living in the gospel reality. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and the way you weave everything together for us. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for the encouragements. We thank you for this reminder of who you are and your authority and your power. And help us never take you for granted, even though you treat us with grace. Help us never mistake your kindness for weakness. For you are an awesome God. Father, we thank you for all your grace toward us and your mercy toward us. We ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. And we ask this in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.